You're listening to Radio Primavera Sound, proudly presented by Cupra. Welcome to the Weekly Review, the radio show where Generation X and Generation Z interconnect, sharing what we've seen, read or listened to on the World Wide Web. This week's special album belongs to a four-piece from the city of Leeds who go by the name of Yard Act, the kind of band that will make you want to leave the comfort of your home to go to a venue with dark walls to see them play live. Any band that guarantees that will make you sweat is worth the train fare. But for those who are in hibernation mode, like some wild bear from a forest, we have a couple of movie recommendations that deal with the heat in the kitchen. Mars mind never hibernates and this week her attention has focused on downgrading. Apparently mediocrity is the thing now. Oh, and we also shall share our thoughts on the unfortunate comments made by Mr. Damon Albarn on the massive talent of Taylor Swift. Let us begin. track here this is two shell tell us a little bit about this track ben they're a mysterious british duo um not even their own mothers know they're in two shell <laughs> I, I don't know that um well probably their mothers don't care do they um but anyway they they make kind of fabulous electronic music um and yeah, up until recently you couldn't sort of find any of it and it was all like you know going for loads of money on 12 inches and then they took the Entirely good uh, move, in my uh, in my opinion, of releasing it on digital. So now you can get these fabulous two songs, and anyone can listen to them. And this is an absolute banger. Apparently, big favourite of Fortet. Oh, right. I'm, I'm getting it in anywhere I can. Basically. Yes, yeah. A little. I, I could also see it fitting on one of those hyper pop playlists that are so popular nowadays. It's a bit Daniel Hall, isn't it? Yeah. A bit kind of you know it, it, with the kind of speed and the vocal. So yeah. I thought I thought it would appeal. It would appeal to us. Yeah, and and very weird to dance to. Oh, you'd almost have to do the Elaine dance in Seinfeld. I don't know if you know <laughs> the one I mean. It's it's an incredible dance. Oh God, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, we're going to start this week talking about our album of the week. Uh, and it's curious that today, part of today's show is going to be dedicated to the concept of mediocrity because maybe a jazz muso might label this album of the week as a bit of a mediocre effort. But what seems like very simple musical composition is actually where the charm in The Overload by Yardact lies. It's rhythmically minimal and the bass and guitars on most songs are uh, a little bit monotonous and repetitive, which results in a very danceable album. Uh, danceable post-punk like this relies on the vocal delivery and lyrics to stand out and frontman James Smith delivers. Uh, ben, give us your professional analysis of the Yard Act, Yard Act The Overload. See, I'm quite, I'm quite surprised that you um, 
weren't impressed with their their playing. I thought like the guitar playing, for example, was really nice. There were some really lovely kind of guitar licks, for want of a better word, and like the bass lines are quite prominent. Um, my, I, I, I thought it was all quite well done. What I thought with with Yarnacht was I thought they're very much like putting a case for how a modern rock band should sound. You know, um, a bit like uh, our, our big friend Nilifer Yanya. You know, they sound like they exist in 2022. Hmm. Like they've got these influences from the past, like the Fall and Happy Mondays and things like that. But like, there's something very firmly present about them. I can't exactly say how they do it, but they just feel like they are a band. Uh, for these days, and it's been a really, really long time since. Uh, uh, well, hang on, I can't say it's been really, really long time because I just said there's been Nilifer, but um, you know, there's not many bands like that that, that that sound for me so very present day. And like, you know, when I've I've only heard about them recently, like last couple of months or something like that, and they seem to have come out of nowhere and just become like really, really big. Um, and I, yeah, I, I wasn't expecting much because like, it's like post-punk. Oh, God, another sort of post-punk band. Like, what's it going to be like? And they're absolutely fabulous. And the lyrics, my God, the mm. lyrics are brilliant. Um, and there's a lot of warmth and a lot of heart. So I really, uh, I really enjoyed them a lot more, a lot more than I thought I was going to. What did you reckon? Well, the, upon the, the first listens, it's like it reminded me of Sleaford Mods because of the vocal delivery, like kind of more kind of yapping or, or delivering speeches rather than actually singing in, 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 in tunes and obviously crossing that with the what, what the quietest labeled as Crankwave. They were just kind of joking about it, but, you know, where bands like Idols, Fat White Family fall into. Uh, I... I'm always, I always welcome it. I love British post-punk, and it's great that mm, they're being they're kind of being labelled as the post-Brexit band because obviously there's a lot of turmoil in Britain with the whole Brexit deal, with what the Tories are doing to the country. So this is the kind of band for this moment. It's it's they came at the right time, I guess. Uh, and there is one song that is very much um, directed at, at at kind of Brexit and, and that kind of thing. I'm just trying to remember which one it is at the moment. Um, I think it's like this, the second song on, on the album. I'll, I'll, I'll get back to that. And another thing that remind that comes to mind is like, oh, Park Life, Blur's Park Life. Mm. And we're going to be talking about Blur frontman Damon Albarn further along. But uh, th- that was one of the sort of bigger bigger mainstream songs where you had, you know, Phil Daniels, was it? Phil Daniels, Phil Daniels yes. uh, who, the, who was the main uh, actor in uh, Quadrophenia, uh, pop cultural data, um, and uh, you know that it reminded me of that. And I've and I've read that there've been a lot of strange comparisons with Yardak's music with Britpop. In what way? What 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 were people sort of saying? Well, they're kind of saying that he he kind of belongs. He should be aligned more with uh, Jarvis Cocker than with uh, Sleaford Mods, say. Well, I got that through the lyrics because the, the lyrics are absolutely excellent. They're very good um, at like looking around and surveying what's all around them. You know, like Common People was such a brilliant kind of summation of uh, certain like, characters. No? Exactly. Exactly. I found I found the song that people are talking about about um, Brexit, which is uh, Dead Horse. Um, and the lyrics are really, really, really good. I mean, they're, they're, they're sort of a little bit um, uh, censored. I'm not going to say, okay. Are you seriously still trying to kid me that our culture will be just fine when all that's left is knobheads, Morris dancing to Sham 69, which is a brilliant lyric. And it's cut, but it's kind of funny. And observant, so it's like that felt to me like very, very Jarvis Cocker, you know, and that kind of. Thing. I don't think musically they sound a lot like pop, other than um, they've got some really good melodies, which which pop also do. Um, but they've got just just that kind of like tiny edge. There's been like it kind of you get a lot of 
recent bands like dry cleaning uh, are quite funny and wet leg are quite funny as well mm. i think they all they all do it really really well um those two are a bit more surreal whereas these like yard act i kind of you you kind of know what they're talking about if you see what i mean whereas like dry cleaning it's like you're really trying to it's like doing sudoku or something like that you're like, i think they're talking about that but i'm not quite sure and like <laughs> wet leg is 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 it, you kind of get it but the, like yard act are more Kind of funny, but more serious in a way, if if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, what, what do you reckon, Mar? You you're our, you're our, we're gonna have to How, yeah, appeal what? to the appeal to the youth here. Do the youth like yard acts? <laughs> yes, I did enjoy it, and I I thought um, this is the week that I'm gonna be the one that says that she doesn't like the album because I don't know. You said post. Bang or something. I was like, oh post punk, post Brexit, yeah. Not Olivia Rodrigo, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and <laughs> then I listened to it, and I don't know. Maybe it's the British accent that has something in me that whenever I hear like a strong British accent, I I get teleported to my youth, quote unquote. I I want to think I'm young still. But when I watched <laughs> all the TV shows um, from like Skins to my Mad Fight Diary and all of that and, and them singing like that, I, I was like, I can imagine them being like the soundtrack of some of these TV shows I loved and, and I really enjoyed it. So I cannot say anything bad. I, and I really liked one song because I was not paying that much attention to the lyrics, even though I could tell if I did, I would enjoy it even more because yeah. when they do like this spoken word kind of moments, um, you know, they're saying some, something that must be like interesting or something. And and but then there's a song that ends just saying like I'm irrelevant, I'm irrelevant or something like that. And I was like, I I love that this is like the end of the song, just repeating I'm irrelevant. Like yes especially on, on my theme this week on my mind, thinking I'm <laughs> mediocre. So, yeah, I'm irrelevant, I'm mediocre. Yes, I agree. Well, there's one really interesting song on this called Tall Poppies, which um, basically relates a tale, um, which is I, it's sort of tangentially connected, connected to mediocrity, um, of like growing up in a small village, and there's that one person who's the best at everything. It's the one person who stars on the football team, the one person who gets all the all, all the girls or the boys or whatever and the, who does well at school. And it's like, you know... Um, and they're talking about that that one person and how uh, he stays in the small village. You know, he doesn't go to, like, Manchester or something where, you know, he'd have been, like, not the best at football, mm -hmm. and, you know, not the, the best looking or that that kind of thing, kind of stays there and make, makes a life around him. And, like, often, like, you can sort of think... That gets a bit sneery because you know they like you could imagine they're going to go oh yeah and we got out of the village and you know forget about you but actually in the end they're like no 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 I think you know it's good that the, the the protagonist of the story dies and basically at the end the book says you know I went away but I came back from the funeral and you know you're my friend and we remember you that way I thought it was lovely the way that what could have been a little bit could have been a little bit bit cynical kind of they they brought it round it's like really kind of like tear no, not quite tear jerking, but like really yeah, but quite, a nice quite, emotion. Exactly, and like musically as well. Like I thought they were like little, although obviously there's a big debt to the fall. But yes. there was little things like sample breaks and like things that sounded a little bit house. Um, a song that sounded a bit like the Beastie Boys meets Suicide, which again sounded very modern. Like you could put this in a playlist of lots of different things, hmm. and it wouldn't sound too out of place like I was trying to play it in, in the, the daily review the other day and I put it after a rap song because I was trying to work out where to put it and I, like, I had, had a load of rap songs I wanted to play and I had a load of guitar songs and I was like what's this one song that goes in between that and I was like Yard Act 
And I, I, I love that it kind of made it kind of made sense. There's something vaguely hip hop about it mm-hmm. in in the kind of lyrics. I'm yeah. very pleased. I love those tracks which transition. That has to happen, I guess. That that I think there will be more of these crosses between post punk and hip hop. You know, Idols already breached that road with uh, having Kenny Beats on as their producer. You know, a, a producer who comes more from the hip hop world, shall we say? And then I don't know. Uh, well, uh, Arctic Monkeys were like very hip hop influenced. They always talk about how much they like the streets. And, yeah. Um, I think arguably they were the first, for me, the first really big rock band to really take on that kind of like British uh, hip hop edge of the streets and people like that, which I think was one of the reasons they really connected, you know, because they sounded very much of their of of their time you know when when they came out and again the lyrics about you know what you see around you rendered in quite a poetic way which is very very hip-hop yeah i think yeah yeah true so we listen to a cut from yardak's debut uh let's we're going to listen to payday do you want to see my uh my my exclusive notes Uh, my notes aren't very good funk guitar quite happy mondays nice little electronic noise the fall there we go (laughs) payday what constitutes a ghetto? Huh? Is it throwing your own lettuces in the potholes on the road? Do the locals have to eat them all if they don't sell them? I call potholes concrete meadows of the soul. What constitutes a ghetto fetish? Huh? Is it growing your own lettuces but not filling in the potholes? The local council will be getting an earful, believe me, I. Call their luck holes, concrete bollards to the soul We all make the same sound when we get mowed down And there are starving children in Africa So go send your toy guns to Bosnia Take the money, take the money, take the money ah, I know what you mean about the, there's a bit of a house groove, isn't there, in that that, that bass and Yeah, drum. yeah, it's kind of rolling, isn't it? You know, like you could imagine. I think I was reading something about how they recorded it and it actually started off as kind of like a house song. You're like, huh? wow, that, that's quite impressive. It's because I read somewhere they said even like Italo disco. I'm like, what? Italo disco? But I could, well, maybe this might not be the example, but there's a certain, yeah, cocktail groove going I on could, there. I could hear it, definitely, definitely. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What constitutes a ghetto, huh? Is it growing your own lettuces in the potholes on the road? Do the locals uh, have to eat them all if they don't sell them? I call potholes concrete meadows of the soul. <laughs> a true poet indeed, Mr. <laughs> Smith. Yeah. I wonder if he's related to Marky. No, he's not. But it's it helps having the name Smith in a post-punk band, doesn't it? That sounds like The Fall. Anyway, um, uh, I've been watching a lot of movies, as you know. Uh, it's one of my favorite things to do, sit on the sofa, eat Tito's, and uh, just watch movies, especially w- movies about food. Um, I've seen two over the holidays. Well, one last week and one over the holidays. Uh, two great films that deal with hot cuisine. Um, do you like eating out? Both of you? Love it. Yeah. Yeah. When I get yeah. the opportunity. Yeah. What's your favorite restaurant, Mar, for instance? I Do you have a favorite restaurant? No, because I'm poor. I don't go out <laughs> that much. <laughs> I like it, but I don't do it because it's expensive. Y- you could have a favorite kebab shop or something or... or uh, like, yeah. Yeah. I... The, yeah. Like I as one. a young person, where... Is there a place you go ba- go to quite frequently? No. The supermarket. <laughs> oh. Right. No, right. So it's your birthday. Right, and your friend's off to take you out to a restaurant. Yeah, but I, yeah, I'm that friend that just leaves the job to others to do it. I'm like, you choose, you 
you bring me to somewhere I like and I don't have to think. Actually, you know the problem? You know the problem? In Britain, if it's your birthday, people take you out. They pay for you in a restaurant. But in here, it's the other way around, isn't it? I was absolutely shocked. How? So the, the the tradition or the normal thing, and, and you're talking about like young people, like 25-year-olds. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. It's, it's Ben's birthday. Mm-hmm. We'll take you yes, out, yeah? Yes, And yeah. we choose the restaurant. Yes. Mm-hmm. No, Well, no, no, but we'll pay. We'll pay. That's the thing. But you choose the restaurant. And here it's the other way around. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, went, I went out for, I think it was, it was a recent birthday. <laughs> and I went out with my family <laughs> and uh, my, uh, my brother-in-law's family. <laughs> And at the end of the meal, everyone was sitting around like... <laughs> Looking at you. <laughs> yeah, Come on. Like, oh, is it me who's paying us? I was like, oh, God damn it. Um, yeah, sorry. I'm, I never appreciated that cultural difference between Britain and Spain. Uh, it is true here you're expected to, to pick up the tab, no? Well, someone was saying on Twitter the other day, like one of the biggest cultural differences is who brings in a cake if it's your birthday. Like... So, in Spain, who brings in... If it's your birthday, do you bring in a cake? Or no, people... you cannot make your own cake. That's sad. You no, don't but, bring but, your but own buy, cake. You can buy the cake to bring to treat. But it's not your own. Like, oh. if it's your own birthday party, I think somebody else brings it for you. But if you're in an office, from what oh, I've yeah, noticed, yeah, yeah, people, yeah. you know, bring in like... Oh, that's a different game. Yeah. On, that kind of thing. Yeah. And yeah. it keeps here at this office, uh, the game got raised considerably <laughs> because people you would usually bring in, you know, like, hey, I brought some croissants or I'll bring in churros, which is lovely in mid-morning, you know, when you're at the office, some nice greasy oh, churros. Yeah, yeah. But uh, someone brought in uh, a leg of uh, cured Iberi- Iberian ham, jamón ibérico, and that just kind of killed, like, who, and everyone whose birthday it was after that, nobody said, like, nobody brought anything. anything because it's like, yeah. I can't top that. I'm not going to come in with some croissants. We need to let the time pass so that people forget about that delicious flavor of ham. Did he bring in someone to carve it? Yeah. No, no. He got one of our colleagues in booking who, who knows how to cook professionally uh, to, do, to do the cutting. But I was, I was sick that day. No, or I was, I, I was doing home office that day and i was looking at the slack and seeing the photos and i'm like no 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 you don't start cutting the ham that way and stuff <laughs> and oh I, I just received a beautiful surprise shout out to carles baena who who says hello um but yeah there's a there's a way to cut ham uh, ladies and gentlemen if, if you buy a spanish iberico ham uh, make sure you watch a youtube tutorial youtube is full of them it's mm-hmm. uh, it's a exquisite science of how to open the leg Anyway, um, but we were talking about restaurants in general for a reason, and it is because there are these two incredibly entertaining movies out the, uh, about hot cuisine, shall we say, or using uh, restaurants as a backdrop for the characters to develop their stories. Uh, one of these films is bo- British film Boiling Point, directed by Philip Barantini, starring the wonderful Stephen Graham, who many might remember from movies like This Is England. He plays the, the, the racist skinhead who all of a sudden has a change of heart, if you watch the series as well. Anyway, he plays a chef whose personal life and restaurant is in shambles, on the verge of collapsing. What's remarkable about this film is that the entire 90 minutes of duration are one long shot. Oof. With no cuts at all. It's an incredibly choreographed, orchestrated uh, film. It's all one great scene, shall we say. And obviously, it's very smart, the camera, because it'll follow one of the kitchen staff outside to fill the bins or whatever, take out the trash. But there's always a story going on. It's, not, it's never 
just sort of an excuse, you know, to give the other actors a rest or get the crew. You know, it's it's very well done. That kind of thing makes me so nervous. I know, because especially if you know, it's like, damn it, if anyone co- you know cocks up or anything. Obviously, for British actors, at least. This isn't really complicated because most British actors all have incredible theatre experience. Even if it's they're young actors, they've done lots of theatre, shall we say. It's not like the American thing of, you know, acting in a classroom and stuff. You know, British actors know how to run through a one hour, two hours without cutting, shall we say, from the theatre. Um, so the whole thing was choreographed. Uh, it, it makes it an incredibly intense experience, as Ben says, you know, because you're always like kind of, <gasps> oh, you know, something might go wrong and stuff. And that's kind of the feeling that you have when you're a cook on the pass during service. It successfully transmits the tension the cooks deal with on the pass, uh, where excellence must be delivered every night. And many pawns are moving simultaneously on the chessboard, right? There have been many movies that are pretty accurate, portraying life in the professional kitchens, burnt with Bradley Cooper, springs to mind, which Eater named the worst movie ever about cuisine, but served a purpose in showing how nasty toxic chefs are. Uh, The movie Chef with Jean Favreau that inspired hundreds of people to invest in food trucks, Soul Kitchen by Fatih Akin, to name but a few recent films of the last decade. Those are all wonderful, you know, they all capture the essence. So apart from the relentless tension, I appreciated that Stephen Graham's portrayal of the chef is a sensitive portrayal of a person who hasn't got his life in order and how that affects everything, his team, his family and his own well-being. So many restaurant professionals have succumbed to alcoholism or drug use and have broken their families. Anthony Bourdain began his book, Kitchen Confidential, writing that if he were arrested, the first person he'd call wouldn't be his wife, or his brother, or a family member, he would call his sous chef, because most cooks spend far more time with their staff than their families, which is a sad fact, but it's also a nice thing. You know, it's the second family, shall we say. In the film, various tropes arise, like the belligerent family that are out to have their fancy dinner, and they act like Roman emperors, with no class whatsoever, being horribly rude to the service. The table of big influencers asking for stuff that's not even on the menu and kind of threatening to use their platforms to put thumbs up or thumbs down. Uh, There's also the presence of a rival chef who shows up with an influential food journalist and making the chef in the story uh, get even more nervous, adding to his unease. Uh, The film shows how important a good sous chef is. It's usually the case. The sous chef, which is the chef's right hand, the one who commands the service and makes sure there's communication between kitchen and front of house. Uh, Well, the actress playing her is Vinette Robinson, who won a British Independent Film Award for Best Supporting Actress. And uh, she's incredible. Uh, She just looks and feels like the the sous chefs I've seen whenever I've done kitchen uh, uh, stages. Uh, according to data on the movie, rehearsals uh, for the shoot were split between the front of house actors, waiters, bar staff, diners, and an Instagram obsessed house manager, and the kitchen staff, chefs, junior cooks, porters, and dishwashers. Each group rehearsed for just five days, with the kitchen staff accompanied by a real-life chef, who was played, uh, Tom Brown, who advised on details such as how to whisk sauces and plate up dishes. After three run-throughs, the plan was to shoot the film twice an evening over four nights, but this was March 2020, so COVID arrived, lockdown was ordered, and the shoot was shut down after two days. They managed four takes, and Barantini used the third. Can I ask a question? You're a man who has um, 
a lot of experience of working in in a professional kitchen, working in in this kind of environment. So did it strike you as being pretty accurate? Very. Like, like, how? In what way? Like, what, what, what what do people get wrong normally? Uh, well, sometimes when 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 they use hot cuisine or or uh, high end restaurant kind of life, they romanticize a lot, and you see the chef whisking sauces and actually sort of cooking and going out to meet the diners and this kind of thing. There was one that uh, one with Catherine Thezeta Jones and Aaron Eckhart. I can't remember the title, but that was like, oh come on, this is a, a a fairy tale of a vision of a kitchen where everything's in order and the and the chef barely breaks a sweat and gets angry at a customer for asking for their steak to be overdone. Uh, this one got what I appreciated was that uh, Stephen Graham isn't playing the cliched chef. He is playing the kind of person I have seen in many kitchens, which. Because there's so many things that a chef has to be responsible for, if you're not a person who's who's natural, natural, a natural leader, because uh, he he's got the case of being one of those chefs who's really good at cooking, right? He's got he's really inventive with recipes and stuff, but uh, but he's a disaster running. He's 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 always late, so it's always his sous chef who's looking out for him, and. I've met people like that and it's like, yes. And it's not so much about, oh yeah, that's a chef. No, that is any person who happens to be in charge of a team because they are talented at a thing that drives a, drives a business, but the leadership skills aren't there. And he was, he's, he's very good at, at, at portraying that. He does it in a way that as an actor, I guess he just went for the, the, the character traits. You know, he's, he's a person who's, who's dealing with addictions. He's divorced. He's, He's forgetting about to ring his child when on a on a special day, this kind of stuff, and it's like, oh, and how that affects the the the, the calamity that ensues. And how just how stressful is it working in that kind of restaurant environment? Because to me, it seems incredible. Like I don't I don't think I could do it. I mean, partially because I mean I'm not, I'm not a good <laughs> cook, but like it just seems like I would possibly collapse under that that kind of stress. Is it that that bad? It it can be that bad, especially when you have a toxic chef. I had the experience of of working alongside a a young sous chef who was a bit like this, you know. Well, no, he had a very quick temper, very quick on the on the service. When we were in prepping, he was totally chill and stuff. But once the service kicked in and the command started coming in, he became so irritable and he had a way of you know yapping and, and barking <laughs> orders at me that I'd get super tense and. And it was a great experience for me because I I need a bit of discipline all the time. So because my fear of him getting to that point was such, I was I, I sharpened my skills. I all of a sudden I, I I managed to focus and concentrate, knowing that oh they've ordered the steak tartare. I know what plate needs to be on the table for him to start plating before he thinks about it. And when I got to that point of being quicker than him, shall we say, like uh, uh, getting his table ready for plating and his ingredients and stuff. When we we connected in that way, it was like, oh, it felt like when, I don't know, a Jedi Knight finally (laughs) balances all the rocks and lifts the ship out of the water and uh, the world is in balance. It felt so good. I almost cried. No, I did. I did. I shed a tear. It's like, oh, I really have it in me. (laughs) You know, usually I'm Kramer, but this time I was Jerry. Uh, um, uh, So a lot of things, you know, there's there's been a lot of denouncing of this kind of toxic behavior lately on social media and stuff. And people saying, look, it's it's no longer the days of Marco Pierre White, which 
it re- this reminded me a lot of what it must have been like in Harvey's. Uh, Marco Pierre White, the, the famous celebrity British chef. Uh, well, no, so he became a celebrity because he was super sexy. He had long hair. He, he was incredibly good as a chef, and but he would he'd throw he'd throw pans at his chef's heads. If something wasn't was cut too coarsely, or if a sauce wasn't well emulsified, he'd throw it. He, you know, he was the worst. He was the worst. But every chef who trained under under him became a, a, a culinary superstar. Gordon Ramsay being the most famous one, mm-hmm. and everyone knew how to reach that level of excellence. But nowadays, people are questioning: Do we need that kind of behavior and this kind of military kind of behavior to reach this level of excellence? No, there are other ways. Uh, because, especially because mental health is important. It's important to take care of your staff. And also because good staff is hard to come by in restaurants. Now, that brings me on to the the other film that I wanted to talk about. Uh, A Taste of Hunger, Danish film directed by Christopher Bowe, starring Nikolai Koster-Waldau, famous for being Jamie Lannister on Game of Thrones and making love to his own sister, apparently. <laughs> and uh, fantastic. Well, it's fanta- not apparently about it. They had a chance. They did, didn't they? Had- <laughs> yeah, yeah, You've yeah. seen them at it. I mean, you know, <laughs> oh my God. It's because I didn't see that season yet. <laughs> Can you believe it? Um, no, hang on, hang on. Season one, they're at it. Are they? Yeah. In season one? Yeah. I saw season one. I can't remember. I can't I thought, well, never mind. <laughs> so, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Cersei, you saucy Cersei. And <laughs> Jamie, what are you two getting up? Well, if you, live in, if you live in the middle of nowhere in what's Westeros or whatever. They live in a big bloody city. There's no... Yeah, <laughs> I know, exactly. And they're royalty. I know. It's like, what is this? I just remember it really well because it's one of the... I remember like <laughs> just being like one of those like dropping your kind of cup of tea moments. You're just like, oh. <laughs> we're, we're, going, we're going there are we okay <laughs> that's lovely right uh, anyway um, yeah so uh, so the film stars Nikolai and Katrin Grace Rosenthal playing a couple who both share the dream of obtaining a Michelin star for their fancy restaurant Mal- Malus um, Bo co-wrote the script with Tobias Lindholm the writer director of Awar who also co-wrote Many films by Thomas Vintenberg, including his latest, uh, Another Round, which we spoke about not so long ago. This movie works on many levels because it accurately shows what a modern fine dining restaurant works like behind the scenes, but especially the effects it has on the life of a married couple who run a restaurant. This film will resonate with so many married couples who devote their life to running a restaurant because it really is a very absorbing life uh, or experience or job. Uh, and the children of these marriages are usually heavily affected by their absence, by the fact that whenever they're together at home, all they do is talk about the business, uh, the chair, the new chairs they have to order for the new dining area, the price of fish for this week's menu, uh, blah, blah, blah. So any child I ha- or any person I've met who, who had parents who owned a restaurant they're like i don't ever want to touch a restaurant as a as a business you know they they don't want to work in the restaurant business because they've grown up with it and they've seen what the the toll it takes so maggie and karsten which are the name of the characters their relationship is 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 that you know you see the phases where they they meet each other at a catering gig and and they, they 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 share this vision and uh Many, I thought, you know, many psychologists recommend couples to spend time away from each other or make sure they have something to do, a hobby or whatever, separately because it's nice to return home and have something new to say, no? But if you're together all the time in such an intense business, uh, it takes a toll on the characters, so we say. So it's uh, the film almost becomes a bit of a thriller at times, 
because it's uh, the the they're searching for this Michelin star uh, agent inspector who apparently is in Copenhagen and uh, but then there's flashbacks that that kind of show why the she is so adamant on finding this guy and why the success of the restaurant is important because otherwise their their life their married life will kind of fall apart very entertaining and um yeah could, could I ask as well? Like, sorry, I'm I'm feeling quite quite <laughs> interested in food. Like, is do you where do you stand on Michelin stars? Because aren't, aren't there a load of people who think they're just a load of old rubbish? Like, it's it's all to do with how they do the tablecloths rather than the food and that kind of thing. It's that's that's the, coming from a country like Spain where we eat so well and so varied in so many different types of normal ordinary restaurants. Uh, I don't understand the point of the super ultra fancy Michelin starred experience. It's nice. And I understand from a business point of view, there is a 1% of wealthy people who are bored with their money. And you kind of think, how can I impress these people? People are willing to pay 500 euros for two hours sat at a table. So it's like, how can we bring excellence to this person's life? I understand that if there's people willing to pay for it, then Michelin starred restaurants or hard cuisine restaurants make sense. But ever since it's become this aspirational thing where People with moderate incomes are like, oh, yeah, you know, give yourself, you know, g- celebrate your birthday or your Valentine's Day dinner or something in a Michelin star restaurant. It's it's a great time. It's and when it's done right, it's you have a you have a brilliant time. But sometimes in a lot of these Michelin star restaurants, the food isn't that memorable. What is memorable is, wow, you know, the way the sommelier seduced you into choosing this wine and all these people pandering you and pam- and pampering you you know it's that's what it is really but you can eat much more excellently in just manolo bars as we call them or or these places where it's just you know a la planta you know they'll just put a really freshly sourced calamari on a griddle a little bit of olive oil and it's like the excellence of look this was fished this morning just a 30 kilometers from here, you know, that's a level of excellence that you don't need fancy um, tablecloths and fancy service to go with it. Uh, and especially what's what everyone questions is, what's the point of um, creating an, a business that you, where you have to deliver this kind of excellence when the married, the married couple who run the restaurant are falling apart, the staff is stressed and overworked. Usually the, the employees are never paid Uh, enough money for the time that it for the work you know because sometimes you end up spending more hours and no one's keeping tab no one sort of pats you on the back for spending three hours more because you you know there's things that needed fixing there's uh, there's cooking processes there's a the the cleaning and ordering of the restaurant is just a nightmare as well you know to keep that level of excellence you need a lot of hands and sometimes it's like, look, this is the going rate for the salary. And uh, sometimes you try and pay, a li- you know, th- they make the effort of paying a little bit more or compensating. But sometimes it's not even about the money. Because if you get two days off work, a lot of restaurants, they will never give you those two days together. Oh. And usually you're so knackered from from working maybe uh, five straight days that the, by the time you get to your, your day off, you can't move. You're, you know, and Bourdain wrote about it perfectly. You know, you're, you're that, that feeling of just wanting to lie in bed and you wake up and you still feel the aches in your muscles and your back and, and, and you know, from standing so many hours. And you think, I always think it's great for young people because when you work in these kind of excellent restaurants, 
you can always move on to do other great stuff as a gastro consultant or setting up your own shop with your own restaurant but you know just taking the key elements and that that can be managed between a, a staff of four etc but yeah it's a debate that continues to happen tell us about nordic chuggy i've forgotten how it's pronounced is it is it Chuggy. Chuggy. Okay. Chuggy. For a moment, I, I had a moment. I was like, oh my God, I've, I've almost forgotten. Tell us about it. Well, because th- since you talked to, told us about Chuggy, I've been all Christmas, I've been like, oh, this is Chuggy. This is so Chuggy. Oh, this is Chuggy. You know, on Instagram, it kind of makes you feel good because it's a way of taking down something that, uh, uh, nah, it's super Chuggy. So, nor- the, the, the Chuggy alert. So, there's a scene at the beginning of this movie, of um, the Danish one, um, uh, A Taste of Hunger, where you see them serving this ta- this r- massive round table where there must be about 20 diners and there are 20 waiters, like one waiter per diner serving them simultaneously like in this choreographed ceremony. And it's like, this is so chuggy. Like, this, is, this, this, is re- this is so outdated, you know, it's... And it's this is what happens, you know, in Nordic countries are, are, are rich countries, you know, they've been rich countries for a long time. So it's what I was saying. It's like, oh, people with money and they're bored. It's like, oh, let's go to this place where we're all served in this kind of ceremony. All you needed now was for the waiters to wear masks, like in one of these sort of ballroom swingers party ballrooms, you know, like an eyes wide shot. I don't know. I just and I've seen this in so many Nordic films where they where the characters are, you know, well off, shall we say. And there's always this kind of thing that I've noticed in the Nordic countries where they, yeah, it's un poco hortera, as we say in Spanish. It's a bit cheesy and, and, and chuggy. Chuggy is the word for it. I don't know. Um, yeah, uh, but that, that's all I have to say about, all right, well, <laughs> about it. Well, I, I want to listen to a song. You claim, apparently, uh, Radiohead uh, are very chuggy. Or okay. very oh, Norwegian okay. chuggy. No, no, oh, no, my God. Okay, Norwegian, Norwegian, <laughs> uh, Nordic chuggy fits into Radiohead ballads. Like re- the, There's a thing about the Nordic chugginess where they, they like the sort of serious ballads, uh, but like by edgy people like Tom York. And, and they like it in a serious way, just like I do. I love fake plastic trees. I like uh, No Surprises. I It doesn't love... sound like you do. Johan. I do, I do, I do. <laughs> but I recognize it's a little bit chuggy when we take it too seriously. Like if I uploaded a photo, a video of like uh, uh, from the from the train, you know, recording the countryside and playing House of Cards by Radiohead, oh, yeah. it would be very chuggy, right? Well, this would be totally normal if I was a Scandinavian, uh, <laughs> cool, rich guy. <laughs> but it's two gears fuck. <laughs> That's all I want. But I love Radiohead. Well, let's listen to uh, just a little bit of Radiohead. Why not? Ah, those Nordic countries with their brilliant healthcare systems and left-leaning governments. I forget them with their with their <laughs> commitment to equality and uh, f- progressive values and good education systems. Forget them, <laughs> those losers. <laughs> Is that what we're saying? 
Basically, they don't have Bar Manolo, así que we win. We win, we win. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I'm reading this book right now called The Drifters uh, by James A. Missioner, and he's, he writes about a Norwegian girl who, whose obsession is to travel to the Costa del Sol, to Tormolinos. And uh, there's a point in the book where he says, yes, Norway, with its incredible health system, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, developed socialism, blah, 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 you know, where everything works. Why would you change that to go to Tormolinos in the 60s, which still had, with certain, well, I don't know, it wasn't as advanced. And it's like, I'll change well, it. Well, it was anyway. under a dictation. It wasn't very advanced. I forget, but it was a haven. It was a haven even during Franco's dictatorship. Anyway, time for Mar. Her name's Mar. Oh, yeah. God, Superstar. We haven't. We, 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 you, it's been a few weeks. You don't put in my. Oh, oh, we got like everyone else. We're in a rut. But alas, alas, we have a guiding star with her finger on the pulse. Mar! <laughs> Well, maybe it's the last time we use this song because I'm no longer a guiding star and I don't no. pretend to be. Because oh, come on. As I've been seeing in the last few episodes, and maybe that's the reason you haven't been putting the, the song, um, I very much fear <laughs> I am fully downgrading, my brain is rotting, there is no turning back, and uh, there will be a point, I will end up reaching a point where I'm completely and utterly stupid, and maybe this will be like my final freedom, like finally arriving to the point where I have no thoughts and it's just an empty brain in my head. Like a himbo. Yeah, <laughs> basically. But the, uh, this was not like a problem. Like, as I said, it's kind of, it sounds freeing to be completely stupid. But I stumbled upon a problem I didn't see coming because I was talking to a friend the other day and I was saying like, yeah, this is what's happening to me. My brain is rotting and I will end up being very d dumber than I am already <laughs> no. and and that's that's it that's how it will go and I'm fine with it and he was like um actually maybe this this the, this decay that you're talking about like this slow decay into being very dumb um it's not <laughs> something that will happen because you're still um like it it's it's maybe something that's uh, static like you think you're going downgrading but you will not wake up one day and say oh i i have finally reached full um stupidness and um, instead you will keep on feeling like you're becoming dumber and dumber but you're just steady in this stage of not being as intellectual or intelligent as the past but and now having a more limited intelligence and and you just will be here in this like bland space in between two places and that has a name which is called being mediocre and like <laughs> mediocrity and i was like oh my god he's totally right like this is what's happening to me like i, I there's a part of me that that like being mediocre is not a bad thing per se it's like it's kind of the the normal thing right it's like the the in between uh, of everything so it, it's kind of good but uh, there's something scary about it that that's the reason why i was so okay with the fact that i would sometime in the future future reach full stupidness because i i was like i have to be at some point of the end of the spectrum if i cannot be like this 
intelligent person, I'm okay with being the, the dumbest person in the room. Like, I have to be on... On, on an ex yeah, uh, extreme. On a, we, uh, we. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm... <laughs> look, maybe I am going <laughs> completely <laughs> dumb. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> But I didn't allow myself the possibility of, of being completely um, bland and irrelevant and being in this half point that nobody really cares about it's just where you are and that's it and and that's and that's something that i i have to come to terms with and i have already done that so i'm i'm not going to say um, that i'm completely in, in complete despair about being mediocre but because i have already because i'm very fast apparently um come to terms with the fact that i am and there's nothing wrong with it because i came to a second realization, because as Kylie Jenner said in 2016, mm. um, to me, 2022 is the year of realizing stuff. And my second realization was um, that being mediocre is actually the best thing that could have happened to me, because we're in an era, in a never seen before era, in which mediocrity is the best place to be or be yeah if, if it's a place like you understand we are in a mediocre yeah i don't even know how to say the word i, I, I was trying to work out how to say <laughs> this mediocre. yeah this is a good good word mediocre Medi like meritocracy but mediocracy like mediocre mediocritocracy Mediocritocracy. 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 that seems too long hang on mediocritocracy Mm. <laughs> mediocre <-tocracy>. mediocre <laughs> yes exactly not a friendly word for mediocre people but this is where we are and and the thing is that, that that's uh, i'm going to explain why we are in this and, and i have proof because every other influencer we see on our timelines the the most popular ones um their brand basically is being relatable being mediocre because what is more relatable than being mediocre which is basically the most part of the population is mm -hmm. like being in, in this middle ground. And I have already talked about um, Emma Chamberlain before, like she's bigger and bigger by the day. And her whole thing is, and what makes her so powerful is, is her brand of mediocreness. And it's in the <laughs> most non-derogatory way. Like I'm not talking about mediocreness as if it's a bad thing. I'm saying like, look, we are all in the same page. And and maybe if we talk about it as a good thing, maybe we can be happier together. Like branding her loneliness, her mundane existence, um, questioning herself if she is boring all the time. <laughs> she basically has created this simplicity movement and in which she's like, I'm okay with all of that. And I'm going to talk about that. And, and you can listen to me talking about it. And, and, and if you relate to it, good for you and good for me and and she's a billionaire now out of ah! that so look at her like and just if if you go to her instagram you can get a, like a visual image of of this mediocracy <laughs> hang on a second 15 million followers yeah and the mill with double l is million it's not million mi yeah, yeah there's yeah. no million no two l's and middle as in thousand <laughs> Emma Chamberlain is, is is everything. Is she's she has more um, engagement than Kim Kardashian or Selena <gasps> Gomez, and she has every post she gets more <laughs> proportionally more likes than Kim um, related to her followers because she she made uh, she makes you relate. And what's more like hugging and and comforting than someone who says, "Hey, it's okay." Like she made. 
as I was saying, like if you go to her Instagram, she's made her thing a casual Instagram, like this trend now, which is like, what are the shittiest pictures you have on your phone? Yeah, post like them. Like a bro- broken toenail. <laughs> Basically, a broken toenail. Her with super big um, under eye bags. Um, her with a messy head um, after getting out of bed, and then maybe a photo shoot um, she did with Vogue in the middle. But whatever, it just everything like she makes messiness um, her brand, and we are. She she is she made. Um, like it said, uh, simplicity movement, and um, and and she is a billionaire because of that. And why does that work? Why is being mediocre kind of trendy? Yeah. Because well, it validates all of us. You might go through the same crisis as I am, and and then instead of uh, being in complete despair as I maybe was going to, you can just look around and see like everybody's going through the same thing. Everybody's bland and. And non-exciting and not special and and I'm not saying that like Emma Chamberlain is is not exciting, but mm-hmm. she she doesn't intend to be. She's like, no, I'm just a normal girl. Whatever. What do you want me to do? I'm. Uh, uh, what's wrong with being a simple girl? At, and I'm I'm much, I'm much more engaging with this concept than a mega huge A-list celebrity, and yeah. that's why that she has more engagement. And and she well, she has a podcast and, and she's basically the most intelligent one because she's profiting out of this idea that everybody relates to. You oh. see, I, 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 one thing I really agree about this is like uh, occasionally when, when like I read, if you read like a classic book, you know, like a real, real classic, I'm just like, I can't, do, I'm just going to go and lie down. What is the point of me doing anything if like, you know, Tolstoy can write a book like this or something <laughs> like that? And then sometimes you read like a sort of really, like really mediocre book and you're just like, oh yeah, I could, I could probably do that, yeah. That happened to me once watching one of these films on, they play on Sundays on one of the sort of normal uh, public channels. One of these, not even a video club movie. It's one of these films that they just sell to television stations in bulk. Uh, one of it, it was like a crappy. It wasn't low budget, but it was just like ah, some something. And and I watched it till the end, right? And it's like, why can I stay up watching this? But when I try and play a Tarkovsky movie <laughs> or some Ingmar Bergman, I'm like, after half an hour, I'm falling asleep, you know, and I'm feeling mediocre because oh, I'm not understanding or enjoying Bergman. Yet I under, this shit movie that no one cares about. Uh, yeah, uh, that happened. But you were saying, Johan, that you've seen like lots of people on their Instagram now putting up like really sh- shitty pictures. But that's been Is happening that- for oh, a okay. long time, where people deliberately put shitty photos, as you say, mm-hmm. out of focus. Just a photo of some random flower in a mm. field that's not even like framed or aesthetic. And it's like, oh, so you're trying to make a deal about how like un. It's a reaction to the super carefully curated yeah. photo of where course. they put filters and there's a symmetrical photo of a person with their back to the camera overlooking a large forest. And it's like, oh, you know, it was, it's like a perfect ad campaign for a brand of Nordic um, um, <laughs> out, uh, outdoor wear, you know? Uh, so I can, I, some, you yeah, can usually everything. see it's like, oh, you're deliberately tro- trolling of almost. Of course, we're in a mediocracy. Mediocracy, mediocracy. No, yeah, mediocracy sounds. We're better. in a mediocracy um, because we're exhausted from being in a whatever that was elite, <laughs> I- elite people. A meritocracy. No, but no, we were never in a. Well, no, no. Right, okay, okay, no. <laughs> um, right, yeah, but um, yeah. So that's like we had a, a visceral reaction against that. So now we're on this era, and that's why I'm saying like oh, having the realization that I'm 
not special, it's actually quite good because it's I'm on time with the, the stuff happening. And I have another example because Emma Chamberlain, we already talk about her, she's the best, whatever. But um, in the last few weeks, I, because it, this happens every few weeks, every few weeks you get a random person becoming famous just for being a random person. Yeah. Um, And the last person to rise fame for doing nothing is, and, and that's not a bad thing. Once again, I am not critiquing any of this. I'm super into um, being famous for nothing. It's Axel Weber, who is a random white boy who blew up overnight on TikTok. He <laughs> now has 3.8 million followers on TikTok. And I'm saying like overnight, it's maybe been a month max tops it's or two but uh, it's not been longer than two months and she and he has almost four million followers all because he has these quirky videos in his tiny apar uh, apartment in new york which are actually quite funny i follow him because uh, one of his of his videos popped up and i i thought he was quite endearing and and funny and um, and three other <laughs> three other million people also thought that but there's nothing more than basically that uh random dude in a tiny new york apartment making silly videos and being goofy um, but people get hooked to that um, to a normal person doing normal stuff and just making a joke um, once in a while and broadcasting his mundane life basically that's yeah. the, the thing um, just so you understand the reach this man has gotten in a, a few weeks um, one of his things was people were like oh why are you living in new york why did you move to this tiny new york apartment and he was like oh yeah i'm gonna audition for a few of the acting schools in new york because they're the best blah 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 and one of his things was i'm preparing for a juilliard audition that's coming up um and he ended up not getting in because juilliard is the top acting school in the states mm -hmm. and it has an uh, acceptance rate of eight percent so it makes sense Damn. people most likely don't get in but The people on TikTok and online raised against Juilliard. And if you go um, into Juilliard's Instagram page um, after Axel didn't get in, um, the post that they posted on, on their feed, um, they have like 80,000 comments of people being like, get Axel in, you made a huge mistake not getting Axel. Axel should be in Juilliard. And, and if you go to other posts before Axel or something like that, um, Like previous to this happening, they had like a hundred comments maximum, and now the, t the top acting school is like getting flooded by actual bots of people <laughs> being like, "Get him into Juilliard," and it's like uh, the way people are are so committed to defend this random dude that they had never seen before and they had never seen act. Uh, they have she, he hasn't been on anything, so they don't know if he's actually good at acting or not. We have just seen him <laughs> on TikTok and. And just because, just because, and exclusively because he's mildly relatable and he does uh, kind of funny comments once in a while and, and he's cute looking, that, that comes to prove that we're well, well, well into the uh, mediocrity era and... and <laughs> And it's the perfect timing for me to discover that I actually fit a lot in, in this time. So, um, and, and be, him being rewarded because of his nothingness because mm. I, and not in a bad way um is is actually working for him because he didn't get into julia well it's obviously working for him because he has three uh, million followers and despite he didn't get into julia i don't think he gives a 
F about it, um, and he will most likely be cast into some Netflix production um, sooner or later or something. He he will be acting. That's yeah. not that's not in question. And he's already signed to a huge modeling uh, agency in New York. So the, you get a lot out of being not that special. So that that's good, but. And and people seem to not believe that that's possible, and and a lot of um, people are coming up with conspiracy theories, saying Axelgate this, Axelgate that. He's just an industry plan. It's an elaborate plan of a PR agency, and and yeah. blah blah blah. But I actually think that that's where we are. We just make random dudes. Um, famous because they exist and there's nothing more that we love more than triviality and mundane and just seeing random people doing their random little acts in their random little lives in New York or whatever. And I have to say that as much as I celebrate that we're in this point of time in which we make random people famous because we love seeing their little lives, um, <laughs> there, it's not a coincidence that all of these cases that we've seen of, of people getting famous, super famous, um, are always thin white girls or cute-looking white guys. And it is um, obvious, well, obvious, well, it, uh, the racism it is a thing, guys. Um, <laughs> and, and it obviously it's only attainable to make a career out of being mediocre for white people. Like, you don't see that happening to creators of color. They always have to, There's it's demanded so much more of them, like, you have to, be I don't know something else you cannot just be a, a lifestyle youtuber out of your little life you have to bring something else to the table when that is never asked to 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 the people mm. like white people like POCs um, communities and they don't get the chances and white people get from brands they don't reach as more to them and if they do it's always like a tokenism thing like yeah. we have to cover this diversity quota and stuff yeah. And yes, it's shitty. I I wanted to end the, the the topic on a good note, but it's it. I think it's very important we clarify that it is only attainable for white people, and and it's very obvious. You you don't see that many people of color being able to be like, "Hey guys, look at me! I'm in a tiny apartment in New York." Yeah, ha, Mark, I'm funny. As a mediocre white person, <laughs> I am all in. This is this is like best news I've had all day. This yeah. is like excellent. I and I used to live in a tiny apartment. I didn't I, film it. I'm kind of glad that a white guy is being celebrated and popular again because, like, for for a oh no, no, I know no, that there's like this. That's not the point of the topic. <laughs> that's not the point of the topic. I know, but it's like if it, and they said it in that White Lotus, you know, series. No, the but mother. Th that's that's that was <laughs> ironic. That was not supposed to be relatable. <laughs> of course, we we give prizes to white people for existing, but that's a bad thing. We should give prizes for everyone and anyway. Anyway, everything sucks. We already know. Um, being mediocre is okay, but only if you're white, that's a bad thing. And also, if you're a cute white guy, normative looking, and please don't be fat, and please be super cute always, um, but I've... in a way that we kind of like. Have under eye bags, but not that much. Anyway, I just want... All I actually wanted... Um, I don't want to be mediocre. I don't want to be a superstar. I don't want to be dumb. I just want to be like a serial aura that floats through life like an immaterial girl like Sophie very well said in a song and that's actually the dream that everyone should go for be an immaterial girl and why don't we hit it say goodbye 
for today with that song by Sophie. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm off to be even more mediocre than, than, <laughs> than before, uh, and I'm going to celebrate it. We'll see you all next week. See you next week, and tune in tomorrow to the weekly review en español. <laughs> Estás escuchando 